Good morning. Please turn in God's word to the book of Philippians and chapter 2. And we'll be looking at verses 1 to 11. This is a wonderful little passage that is so rich with truth, with doctrine and application, that we could easily spend a few weeks in it. But we don't have a few weeks. So let's dig right in. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And I will be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. Verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, fulfill my joy that you think the same way, by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Before we look at the text, let's have a word of prayer. Father, you are glorious and magnificent, worthy of all praise and worship and adoration. Lord, we thank you for your word. Please minister to us through your spirit. Illumine our hearts and minds. Give us understanding, Lord. Help us to apply your word into our lives. Please strengthen our faith and our walk with you. And in Jesus' name we ask, amen. The church at Philippi was founded by Paul in his second missionary journey. You would remember in Acts 16, where Paul preached the gospel to a group of people, and a woman named Lydia was converted at that time. Now, even though Paul was in prison while he wrote this letter, Philippians is primarily a letter of joy and encouragement. And Paul's passionate plea in the letter is to pursue Christ-likeness. And so coming to our passage, Paul provides us with four arguments to pursue unity and humility in the church so that we would live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so firstly, Paul presents his case. Look at verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. Paul begins with the word, therefore, meaning he's following on from what he just said at the end of chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain, in, remain absent, 
I will hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind contending together for the faith of the gospel. And verse 29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So Paul has just appealed to the Philippians to strive for unity and to do so even in the midst of suffering since the Philippian church was experiencing some kind of persecution at this time. And now in verse 1 of this chapter, Paul poses a set of rhetorical questions for these believers. These four questions begin with, if there is any, or if any. But since they are answered in the affirmative, they are better understood as, since there is. Let's look at each one individually. If there is any encouragement in Christ. The word for encouragement can also mean comfort. So Paul asks these believers, is there any comfort or encouragement from being in Christ by being his people? Of course there is. The union that we have as believers with Christ is the source of our joy, our comfort, our encouragement. According to Ephesians 1.3, every spiritual blessing we enjoy is because we are in Christ. From salvation from God's holy wrath, to adoption into God's eternal family, to the removal of guilt and unrighteousness in our justification, and the day we receive a sinless nature in our glorification. All of these blessings are ours because we are in Christ. Paul then says, is there any consolation in love? Consolation here can take the meaning of comfort or of solace. So is there any solace afforded by love? Romans 5.5 5 says, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. This is the love with which we can love God and others. And this love is especially precious as it gives hope to a believer living in a fallen world. Paul again poses a rhetorical question in Romans 8.35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as this love was comforting for the Philippian believers under persecution, do we not hold steadfast to Christ's love during those trials in our own lives? Some of us have walked through the valley of despair. But did Christ's love not see us through those dark moments? When we thought the trial was too much to bear, we were reminded that the good and sovereign God still loves us and that he works together all things for our good. If you are in a trial at the moment, beloved, be comforted by God's love for you, knowing that trials are necessary for a, for a Christian as James 1-2 reminds us, and that he will carry you through no matter what you are experiencing. The next question Paul asks is, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit. Fellowship is the Greek word koinonia, which means partnership or sharing. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit residing in you, and you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That means we have the tremendous privilege of being in an, in an intimate relationship with God, with the God that we worship. The Holy Spirit not only seals us and guarantees our eternal security, but we also experience the gracious ministry of the Holy Spirit in and through us. He is the one who helps us in our prayer life. Romans 8.26 bestows spiritual gifts on us, 
1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 11, and enables us to bear spiritual fruit. Galatians 5, 22 to 23. The reason for any holiness in us is because of the Holy Spirit. And now, Paul's last rhetoric is, if any compassion, affection and compassion. Affection also refers to the heart or the seat of emotion. And compassion is obviously mercy. So Paul is asking if we have experienced any heartfelt affection and mercy from God. We have experienced these, reality, these realities as soon as we have believed in the gospel. In fact, it is these qualities in Jesus that drew us to him in the first place. And we are able to, with the help of the Holy Spirit, show others the same affection and mercy. It could be showing affection through prayer for someone, or meeting the need of others, or by performing an act of kindness to a believer. And how precious is mercy when we are quick to forgive, or when others cover up our sins in love. What a blessing it is when we get to share in and experience such graces with fellow believers. So with each of these lines of persuasion used by Paul, we have seen that they are blessings or glorious realities of believing in the gospel of Jesus. As Christians, we have objectively and subjectively come to know and experience the encouragement, love, fellowship, affection, and compassion of God in Christ through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And this is true not only at an individual level, but for us corporately as well. Here we see the character of each member of the Trinity, as well as their unity, as they work together to bring new life through salvation to the believer. And this unity in the Godhead is the foundation for the church's fellowship in Christ and his spirit. And so Paul, by presenting his compelling case, essentially lays the groundwork for his appeal in verse 2, in which we see Paul's concern. Verse 2 says, Fulfill my joy that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose. Paul is saying that since we have experienced such rich benefits of salvation, that should motivate us to pursue unity within the church. We know that the Philippian church had a problem of disunity. Even though the church had exhibited much gospel fruit by partnering with Paul in prayer and providing financial support for his missionary endeavors, there was internal conflict and strife among some of its members. And Paul's concern for this disunity drives him to address that head on. Paul, by saying, fulfill my joy, makes this appeal, not by his apostolic authority, which he usually does, but on the basis of his personal relationship with the Philippians. And so, this reveals Paul's pastoral heart as he tenderly pleads with them and says, if at all there is any meaning to the spiritual realities we have in Christ and his spirit, and if we share in these realities, then strive for unity. And as we shall see later, humility. Remember that Paul is in prison at this moment, from where he writes this letter. And so, what will bring him joy, or rather what will complete his joy, is not his own release from prison, but seeing these believers 
put aside their differences for the sake of Christ and his gospel. And by doing this, Paul himself provides an example of love and selflessness and encourages the church to restore fellowship between those who are in conflict. So Paul proceeds to speak directly to those who are promoting disunity in the congregation. Just like there was a fourfold appeal when presenting his case, Paul now presents a fourfold concern for the believers to respond to for the purpose to, of achieving unity. He tells them that you think the same way or be of the same mind. The idea here is to have the same mindset, to have the same attitude or disposition of mind. Now, Paul is not saying that the believers should have the exact same thoughts, opinions on all matters, but rather to be like-minded and have a similar outlook and a way of looking at things, like you would in a friendship. Paul's emphasis is we ought to have a unity with regard to the gospel. The church in Rome was reminded to have this unified disposition. Romans 15.5 says, Now may the God of perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Paul also admonished the immature and divided church in Corinth, saying, Finally, brothers, rejoice, be restored, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. And it seems like a lack of like-mindedness was the cause of disunity among the Philippians. Because in chapter 4, verse 2, Paul singles out two individuals who could also have been the leaders of two factions within the Philippian church. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to think the, think the same way in the Lord. He pleads with them to pursue unity in the gospel by being like-minded. Moving on, we are to also pursue unity by maintaining the same love. Paul's concern now switches from the mind to the heart. The Greek word for love here is agape, which means a love of the will, not based on feelings, which is typically how love is defined in our culture. John MacArthur explains agape well when he says, it is based on an intentional, conscious choice to seek the welfare of its object. It is because agape is based on the will that it can be commanded. Now the adverb same used to describe love can also have two meanings here. It could be alluding to the same love that was spoken of in verse one, where it says, if there is any consolation of love, that would mean we ought to love one another with the same love that God has comforted us with, the love that he has poured out into our hearts. Or it could also mean that we love each other the same way, each of us exhibiting a shared love for other equally. In John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. The love of God which is displayed to us in the self-sacrificing life and death of his son is what we are commanded to imitate. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says that we ought to be controlled by the love of Christ. And as we do so, it generates true fellowship and unity. Colossians 3.14 says, Above all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. 
Paul had exhorted the Colossian church, like he did in all his letters to the churches, that when love is the most dominant grace in the church, unity flourishes. And we ought to increase in this love as Paul had prayed the Philippians would do in chapter 1 verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. The next appeal for unity is to be united in spirit. Spirit here literally means one soul. It can refer to one's life, heart, or mind. It is also used to describe the unity to be displayed in a marriage relationship between a husband and a wife as they become one flesh. So it is a call to be united in mind and heart, which is a combination of the first two appeals, so that we think and feel the same. The goal is to come together as one to advance the cause of the gospel. Paul communicated the same idea when he used the metaphor of a body to describe the church, with all its members functioning together to work towards a common agenda to advance God's kingdom. When the church is united in spirit, it puts, it, puts aside any personal differences or preferences that are inconsequential consequential in the grand scheme of things so that it may not lead to division in the body. We ought to look at the bigger picture so that we may live harmoniously and serve the Lord together with a singular purpose. And this is Paul's next concern, that we may be thinking or intent on one purpose. This phrase is basically synonymous with the first appeal, which is that you think the same way. The added nuance here is that instead of being the same mind, it is to have one mind or one mindset. As since the verb is a present participle, this is to be done continuously, not as a one-off response. So just as Paul began, he ends with a call to have renewed minds, minds that are not conformed to the standards of this world. We live in a world that is dominated by strife, intolerance, hatred, bitterness, anger, unforgiveness, jealousy, and division. These are the virtues that are actively promoted in our culture, and they even permeate the air that we breathe. From marriages and families to corporate organizations and political institutions, our society is plagued by discord and division. But the church is not to act like the world. The body of Christ has a higher calling. Look around us a people from different parts of the world with diverse backgrounds, interests, vocations, and hobbies. There's no reason for us to be gathered together in this room right now, apart from Christ. But God's plan has always been to gather a people for his son from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and bind them together under one purpose and mission. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, in John chapter 17 said, he prayed to the Father, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity, so that, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me.
Remember that Jesus, by this point, had finished his earthly ministry and has begun his ministry of intercession for his followers. And so, in some of his last words, just before his arrest, he expresses his concern for the unity of his people. Jesus prays to the Father that his church would be a picture of the unity, love, and harmony displayed in the Godhead. A united and faithful church is the vehicle that God uses to proclaim the glorious gospel of his Son and to make disciples of all nations. But a church where dissension and disunity festers has no gospel power and is no longer a faithful witness of the God they represent. God's desire is that every church be united. And so, let us make every effort to pursue unity in the body for Christ's sake. So what we have seen so far is that Paul makes his case for unity among the body of believers. And he is also concerned for this unity to be comprehensive. He now states the means to achieve such unity, and that is through humility. Look at verses 3 to 4. Doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Paul begins by stating two negative phrases, by telling the Philippians that they ought not to do. First, doing nothing from selfish ambition. Selfishness is the root of all sin. The innate human desire to please self is the root cause behind all sin. Ambition in and of itself is not wrong. The desire for God to be glorified and for his name to be great is a godly ambition. But if one's desire is to advance oneself, then that is selfish ambition. If the motive behind our ambition is for prestige and status and personal honor, it is sinful. Selfish ambition is destructive, not only personally, but it also causes disunity within the church. In the gospel accounts, we see vividly the self-seeking motivation behind the actions of the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees had their own selfish agenda. They were seeking their own honor, their own prestige, and Jesus reserved the greatest condemnation for them. We read about this in Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 to 36. And they serve as a warning as to the destructive nature of this sin. And James 3.16 reminds us how this sin affects the church, where it says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and evil, every evil practice. The next negative that we should abstain from is to do nothing from vain glory or empty conceit. Vain glory refers to empty glory, where one has a self-inflated view of themselves. They are not concerned with the glory of God, but rather with the glory of self. In their pride, they consider themselves right and wise in their own eyes. They think too highly of themselves, but they actually have delusions of grandeur. A heart that is selfish and conceited is prone to complain and argue, which the Philippians were guilty of. Sowing the seeds of murmuring, grumbling, gossiping, and bickering will bear the fruit of disunity. Beloved, 
Let us guard against such ungodly attitudes. And now Paul moves to the positive. Instead of having selfish ambition or empty conceit, we should have a humility of mind. Humility of mind or loneliness in mind is, as one commentator explains, a humility before God which leads to a humility in our relationships with others. Humility has been called the bedrock of Christian character, which is why the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 begins with, blessed are the, what? Poor in spirit. Now, humility is a uniquely Christian value. Virtue, rather. The Greco-Roman world, which the Philippines were part of, considered humility as a fault, a shortcoming, and not a virtue. Therefore, humility as an attitude was radically countercultural. But it is only those who have come to see themselves as creatures dependent on a benevolent creator and those who see their unholy condition before a holy God that have cause to be humble. Those that are humble recognize that it, there is not an ounce of goodness in them, that all their righteous deeds are like filthy rags, and any virtue in them is because of the grace of God, so that they have ultimately no reason to boast. And with this humble mindset, we are to think of or esteem others as more important than ourselves. The Bible says we should be giving preference to one another, Romans 12.10. And 1 Corinthians 10.24 says, let no one seek his own good, but that of the other person. And Paul himself exemplified this virtue. He considered himself as the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle. The very least of all saints and the foremost of all sinners. I love what John, Canville, John Calvin, 16th century reformer, said on how we should put this mindset into practice. He said, for however anyone may possess outstanding endowments, he ought to consider that they have not been conferred upon him, that he might be self-complacent, that he might exalt himself or even esteem himself. Let him instead employ himself in correcting and detecting his faults, and he will have abundant cause for humility. In others, on the other hand, he will regard with honor whatever there is of excellence and will in love bury their faults. Let me translate that for our modern minds. What Calvin is basically saying is that whatever our gifts, graces, abilities, our focus should not be on them, but on our faults, our shortcomings, our sins. Whereas in others, we ought to look for them, look for the good in them, things that are praiseworthy. And if they have sinned unknowingly, we ought to cover their sins in love. It is having a low view of ourselves and a high view of others. Therein is the formula for humility that will ultimately lead to unity in the church. But we not only need a mindset of humility, we also need to put it into action, which is what verse 4 says. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. The human heart is by nature selfish. It's what comes naturally to us. We love to pump, pamper ourselves, take care of ourselves, and give ourselves the best. Now, the Bible is not against anyone enjoying the daily essentials of life, like feeding or clothing oneself, 
or ensuring you and your household are provided for, or even enjoying leisure time or pursuing one's hobbies. But that shouldn't be our focus, but our emphasis should be. That's why the verse begins by saying, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. The point is that instead of being self-centered, we should be other-centered. And that's what you would do in a church community, where you let go of your own needs and preferences and you think of how you can meet another believer's needs. You are no longer preoccupied with your own life, but are concerned about the lives of others. This is what we were reminded of a couple of weeks back when Ronnie preached about God's greatest commandments, which is to love our neighbor as ourselves. Someone once said it well, love begins when someone else's needs are more important than my own. We need to reject our culture's fascination and obsession with self, to seek self-fulfillment and personal autonomy at the expense of others seems to be our culture's greatest commandments. The love of self is antithetical to the Bible, which teaches that love does not seek its own. 1 Corinthians 13.5 So, practically speaking, this would mean putting others' preferences ahead of your own. When you hear of a fellow brother or sister in Christ, in need, whatever that may be, you would offer of yourself no matter the inconveniences to yourself. And to practice this, you will need to be relationally invested in other believers' lives. You will need to take a keen interest in their ideas, interests, and needs, rather than showing a passive indifference. The Bible says to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, Romans 12.15. And in Romans 12.14.19, we are told, Pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Humility is a virtue that is countercultural in the age we live in too. Our culture operates by the motto, survival of the fittest. We're getting ahead by putting others down, especially the weak, is not only acceptable, but also encouraged. But as those belonging to the body of Christ, we are called to be humble and to bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians 6.2 And as we do so, unity flourishes in the church. But humility is not only taught, it is also caught. And the greatest example of humility that we ought to learn from is from our Lord Jesus, which is Paul's final argument in the pursuit of humility. Verses 5 to 11 reads, Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is one of the most profound, theologically and ethically rich 
Christ-exalting passages in all of Scripture. In these verses, Paul gives a sweeping overview of Christ and his role from eternity past to eternity future in the atonement or the accomplishment of redemption. We see in this passage the pre-existence Christ, his incarnation, his righteous life, his crucifixion and resurrection, and ultimately his exaltation. And Paul does so with the aim of highlighting the humility of Christ so that we would emulate his supreme example. Paul begins this section by saying, have this way of thinking in yourselves or have this attitude. If we remember from back in verse 2, we were told we should employ a particular mindset. And that was to be like-minded with one another for the sake of unity. And continuing that thought, we are now told to have Christ's mindset or to have his attitude. And what was the mindset that was in Jesus? Humility, as we shall see Paul go on to expound. A humble attitude in the church is required for unity to be established. This attitude, which is also in Christ Jesus, is expressed in his sacrifice, service, and selflessness, which a believer should emulate and exhibit instead of, uh, of the ungodly attitudes of verse 3, which is self-centeredness, conceit, and selfish ambition. Now the first part of verse 6 says, who, although existing in the form of God. The word existing indicates Jesus' divine status. He is fully and eternally God. And that is true before, during, and after his incarnation. And the word form does Form does not mean Jesus was like God, but not really God. But rather it carries the idea of nature or essence. So Jesus' true nature and his essential being was of God. He is the very manifestation of God, which is why the verse goes on to say he is equal with God. These are clear statements of the deity of Christ. Verse 6 goes on to say, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The word regard has the sense of give priority or in thought to. And grasp means to seized, seized or prized. So put together, Jesus did not consider his status of being equal with God something to be seized upon or prized, or something to be used to his advantage. Being by nature God, Jesus had divine power, status, rights and privileges, but he did not cling on to them. He refused to exploit his position and use it to advance his own selfish ends. And by doing this, Jesus did not display any selfish ambition. Rather, he humil in humility, he considered others more important than himself. He did not look out for his own needs, but the needs of others. Unlike the gods of other religions, who lord it over others, and revel in their own power and glory, Yahweh, the one true God, chose to give of himself to others. And this is what we see in Jesus, who, in a self-abasement for the benefit of his creatures, condescended into his creation. Verse 7 says, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. Emptied himself has the idea of pouring oneself out. As one commentator explains, it is a metaphor to indicate one becoming powerless and to be emptied of significance. 
Suppose, so Jesus, instead of clinging on to his divine rights and privileges, he forsook them or laid them aside temporarily. Emptied himself can also mean Jesus made himself of no reputation or made himself nothing, as some other translations put it. Now it's important to remember that Jesus did not, even for a moment, empty himself of his divine attributes. Or in other words, he ceased to be God. That is an impossibility, because God is eternal and immutable. Jesus was, is, and will always be fully God. And how did he empty himself? By the means of the incarnation. By taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. In his incarnation, he took on human nature, and by doing so, he laid aside his glory which he enjoyed from all eternity. Jesus' divine glory was hidden or veiled by his humanity. We see this in the story of the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus partially revealed his divine glory to Peter, James, and John. We read that in Luke chapter 9, verses 31 to 32. And as we saw earlier in John 17, 5, Jesus had said, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. By adding a human nature to his divine nature, he subjected himself to the weaknesses of human flesh. And he did not add any human nature, but he will not willingly took on the form of a slave. A slave, as you know, has no rights and privileges, and is servant to all. He adopted a posture of servitude. The one who has the form of God, chose to exist in the form of a slave. The creator of all was subject to the limits of his creation. The infinite had become finite. The Lord of glory became the lowly servant. The incarnation of Jesus can be thought of as subtraction by addition. It is subtraction or an emptying out by the addition of a human nature to his divine nature. The incarnation was just the beginning of Christ's humiliation. Now as a born servant, as a slave, he subjected himself to the will of the Father and to serve those for whom he came to die. Matthew 20, 20, 20 verse 28 says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. In Luke 22 verse 27, Jesus says, For who is greater? the one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines? But I am among you as the one who serves. And then John 13, the day before he went to the cross, Jesus gives his disciples an example of selfless love and humility by washing their feet. And in verse 14 to 16, Jesus says, If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you, should, you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Interestingly, the theme in Sunday school today for the children is also on humility. And so, while we read the same passage during the week, I asked my children, 
would you wash each other's feet? They thought and quickly came back with the answer, no. Unsurprisingly. They said they were happy to wash my feet, but not each other's. And sometimes we in the church have the same attitude and serve only those we are close to, or only those that have served us, only those who are in our good books. Or sometimes we refuse to go the, go to the extra mile just because of the inconveniences it causes us. But just like Jesus, we have to refuse to hang on to our rights and privileges as a child of God. Willingly assume the position of a slave and selflessly give ourselves to one and all. We have to follow Jesus' supreme example of servanthood and serve one another in humility. Moving on to verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In his incarnation, Jesus becomes the God-man, fully God and fully man. Being found in appearance as a man does not mean he was like a man, but he was truly man. But unlike the rest of humanity, Jesus was the perfect man. That is, he was sinless. And in his humanity, he humbled himself. First, by assuming the form of a slave, as we saw earlier, but now even further. How? By becoming obedient to the point of death. Jesus in John 6, 38 said, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And in earlier, John, in John chapter 4, verse 34, he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus' food, his sustenance, that which sustained him his whole life here on earth was to submit himself in complete obedience to his father. That is why even when facing the agony of the cross, when he had to drink the cup of divine wrath, he prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus was completely devoted to God, and he expressed his devotion through his obedience even unto death. And Jesus not only loved his father, but he loved the world. And that was his motivation to lay down his life. So that through his obedience unto death, he might make many righteous. Romans 5.19 And not just any death, but death on a cross. Death by crucifixion was reserved for the worst of criminals. It was a cruel and most extreme form of punishment imaginable. The cross was scandalous to the Greeks, who had no concept of humility. In their human wisdom, they just couldn't accept the creator of all, dying the death of a state criminal on a horrible cross. And the cross was offensive to the Jew, a stumbling block, because according to Deuteronomy 21-23, God has cursed anyone hanging on a tree, and they considered crucifixion a form of hanging. The cross is also, also scandalous to the modern mind that cannot reconcile the need for Jesus to suffer a horrific death on a cross in order to satisfy God's justice and his wrath. But this was God's plan of redemption that the, that the Father purposed in Jesus 
that he would sacrifice his own son and that Jesus would, out of his own volition, die for the sins of the world. And the Holy Spirit would apply the benefits of salvation to those that are saved. The physical and spiritual agony that Jesus endured, not only by the death on the cross, but also leading up to it, was the high point of his humiliation in the incarnation. The God-man became a curse for us so that God's curse would fall on him instead of on us. Galatians 3.13 Jesus did this because he is love and he sacrificially gave himself for those whom he loves. Like Jesus, we ought to express our love for God and others in our pursuit of unity and humility. And with love as our supreme motivation, at the end of our obedient service to God, no matter what he has called us to do in this life, we will, we will have only done what was expected of us as his slaves. Jesus in Luke 17.10 says, In this way you also, when you do all the things which are commanded of you, say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. And finally, in verses 9 to 11, we see the exaltation of Jesus by God the Father. Verse 9, Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Therefore, or for this reason also, as the NASB says, indicates that the reason that God exalts Jesus is because of his humbling in obedience by dying on a cross. And this exaltation though not explicitly stated, includes his resurrection and ascension. The very glory, power, rights, and privileges that Jesus laid aside temporarily have been restored on him and more because God bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Now because verse 10 begins by saying, so that at the name of Jesus, the tendency is to think, that Jesus is the name that was bestowed on him. But Jesus, which is the Greek form of Joshua, with the Hebrew Yehoshua, meaning Yahweh's salvation, was a common name at that time. This is why Jesus was quite often referred to as Jesus of Nazareth, in order to distinguish him from others with the same name. But the name or title that was bestowed on Jesus is in verse 11, which says, Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, which is kurios in Greek and means master, is the name bestowed on Jesus, which is the equivalent of Yahweh from the Old Testament. We know this because the verse says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now this language is drawn straight from the book of Isaiah in chapter 45. There Yahweh says that he alone is God and the savior of Israel and of the whole world. And in verse 23, he says, to me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. And now Yahweh has transferred this right to his son. In his exaltation, Jesus has been installed as God and savior of the whole world and has been given the highest place of honor. Jesus is the sovereign Lord and supreme ruler 
of the whole universe. And Jesus will receive acknowledgement of his lordship and his salvation from all, not just that those who belong to him. Every living being in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that is angels, men and demons, will bend their knee in submission and worship the humble and obedient son. Jesus, as a result of his cosmic victory, will receive universal authority and homage from all creation. And ultimately, this is to the glory of God the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, 28 says, And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. So just as Jesus, so just as exaltation followed Jesus' humiliation, that pattern is true for us, his church. All those who humble themselves in this life will be glorified. We have the tremendous assurance that all who place their trust in this humble and obedient Jesus will be guaranteed of their redemption in him. So in closing, how can we live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel? By remembering that we are partakers of glorious realities in Christ, which should motivate us to pursue unity in his church. And the means to accomplish unity is through humility. A humble church is a united church. A church where humility is practiced, unity reigns in that body. Let us learn humility from the example of Christ, our Lord, so that God may be glorified in all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glorious gospel of your son. Thank you, Jesus, for taking upon yourself our sins. Thank you for the love because of which you humbled yourself and came down to earth as a man. Help us, Lord, to love others with the love that you have poured out into our hearts. Lord, help us to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Help us to for please forgive us for the times that we have thought highly of ourselves and help us instead to put on humility. Help us to learn from Jesus' example by being humble, sacrificial, selfless, and servant-hearted. And as you mold us into Christ's image, help us to faithfully proclaim your gospel, that your kingdom would advance, so that Christ's name would be great among the nations. And this would all be to the praise and glory of your name, Father. And in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.